Welcome to the State of the Outdoors podcast, where we tell you straight what's going on at the local, state, and federal level that impacts our outdoor heritage. Our intent is to inform and empower sportsmen and women. Further, to encourage them to get involved and be part of the process. We'll try not to editorialize or sensationalize the issues of the day. My partner in this venture is none other than our 4th District Commissioner for the Kentucky Chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, Ben Bishop. Um, today we are uh, listening to the social distancing guidelines once again and doing this podcast over the phone. Ben, what's up, buddy? Oh, not, nothing too much. You know, we've uh, we've missed a little bit, so there's been uh, there's been some turkey uh, turkey season going on that we've uh, that we've skipped over. But uh, I had a I had a somewhat decent turkey season. Uh, I was, uh, me and my dad were able to double on some uh, on some jakes opening day, and uh, after that, I mean, the turkeys just left our lease, and because there was no pressure on the neighboring farm, because those guys come from out of state, and with the whole COVID going on, can't you know no no non-resident turkey hunters this year, and they just weren't pressured over there, and after after opening weekend, they left and never came back, but. I was able to, to fill at least half the tags there, and uh, now it's on to squirrels for me. So, what about what about you? Oh man, you know, being a retired guy, uh, I got <laughs> <laughs> I got time to hunt turkeys. I think I hunted turkeys twenty three days, um, and the only wow. days I only days I didn't hunt were days that it was gonna rain. I just don't uh, unless it's ducks and geese. I just don't hunt in the rain. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, um, I'm almost ashamed to admit it. I killed all four turkeys this year. Um, <laughs> for those who don't know, the state of Kentucky allows you to kill two turkeys on the state, and then if you do the paperwork, you can hunt on public land. Um, anybody can hunt uh, Fort Knox or Fort Campbell, and each of those bases, uh, each of those Army bases give you two more tags, and since they are federal property and they manage their own wildlife, um, they manage it um, – in the same manner uh, that the state manages it and in conjunction with the state, but they do it using uh, federal guidelines. So Fort Knox and Fort Campbell always have tags that are based on Fort Knox and Fort Campbell. And so uh, there's two more tags available at each one of those bases. So if you really got greedy, you could you could uh, take six birds in Kentucky without ever leaving the state. So I got my two birds um, on Knox, which is public land, and I saw more people at Fort Knox hunting than I saw on actual WMAs and I did hunt some WMAs um uh, it was crazy I've never seen it like that there uh, and it was due to COVID-19 I'm sure that people were you know home with nothing to do so um every every expert every uh, intermediate skilled and every amateur turkey hunter in the world was out um heard some very interesting alcohols which I think people could have just been screaming, "Hey, is there any turkeys here? Hey, is there any turkeys here?" <laughs> but uh it was it was definitely interesting. And then I started mentoring people. Most of the people I mentored during turkey season were older veterans. Um one guy's a real expert hunter. He just hadn't hunted turkeys very much. Um and I mostly just called for him. He knew how to hunt. And we got him a bird on public lands. And then the other gentleman um had never hunted turkeys and I needed to help him a lot. He was an 80-year-old Vietnam vet, and uh, he was he was a good time to, to help him, and that's what I spent most of the rest of the season doing. And then a good friend of mine, um, Scott Cronin, bless his heart, um, he saw, I guess he saw all the help I was giving others. He called and invited to help me, which was a real treat because – I'm pretty good at calling. This Scott's in it. Scott's way better. And uh, he called a bird in. He called a bird in on private land. And I very rarely hunt private land for turkeys, but he he called a bird in for me on private land. Um, 
and we killed it at dawn. It was a wonderful experience. They were, they were competing toms on that private, um, trying to get in on our decoys and deciding if they were going to fight over them. It was so cool. And it was foggy, and it was like it was like gorillas in the mist, man. Turkeys were coming out of the mist <laughs> to see our decoys, and uh, he called them. Yeah. Right, he called them right to me. It was beautiful, big bird. And then very, very late at the end of the season, he called me back and said, "Hey, you want to go? I just need to get out. You know, you want to go hang out at my dad's farm? We got a little farm farmhouse there. It's it's pretty rough, but there's some turkeys on there usually, and you know, and we'll split up. And he took one of my friends who needed some help in mentoring turkey hunting that morning, and he let me just wander the backside of his farm alone. And we agreed to meet at like 10 a.m. and <clears throat> and have sausage and biscuits. And there was nothing going on. In fact, I was sleeping um, against a tree, just looking at my hen decoys up on a knob in the woods. And right at 10 a.m. when I set up to leave, I saw a big red head just coming into my decoys man i didn't wait i I knew it was i knew it wasn't a hen it turned out to be a jake so that was my fourth fourth tag they they all eat the same yeah well i was happy to and and honestly um my wife uh made a fabulous fabulous meal out of that jake so i was pretty pumped up so turkey season went real good um i'm not a big fan of this august weather in may it's killing me. no not at all not at all it, it's too hot to squirrel hunt, man. I mean, by the time you yep. fill your limit, the first squirrel in your bag is rotten. It's at 90 degrees. Oh, yeah. So yep. this week's supposed to cool down and stop that everyday thunderstorm. Oh, yeah. I think, like, for the last two weeks, it was, like, more than a 60% chance of storms every day, and I guess that's just because of, you know, the humidity and the way, it, you know, how hot it is. But Yeah. I'll tell you the other thing, man, is this COVID-19, I'm, I'm glad we don't do one of those YouTube podcasts because my co- my COVID hairstyle is, I'm getting ready to, I look like, you know, a member of the band Leonard Skinner with this long hair right now. <laughs> but uh, I'm sure. I, I got tired of mine and I just gave myself a haircut. I was like, well, I, I wear a hat 95% of the time anyway, so nobody can tell. <laughs> I'm not, I used to do that when I had no money and I was a young person and, and I had to keep it, uh. Had to keep it straight for the military, but uh, now that I'm retired, I just I'm just letting it grow, man. God bless. It's yep. it's it's the it's the uh, side effect of COVID nineteen. I'm sure oh, every yeah. I'm sure everybody's done listening to us BS. They want to hear the the issues, man. You ready to do national issues? Yeah, I'll uh, jump right into it. Not a whole lot going on with the national stuff, just because you know they've got bigger uh, bigger issues to deal with, I guess, at the moment. And uh, I've uh, picked out two things to talk about. The first thing is the Mapland Act, and that's the Modernizing America's Public Lands Act. And that was uh, brought forth by Senator uh, Martha McSally out of Arizona, Angus King out of Maine, and then Representatives Russ Volker out of Idaho and Derek Kilmer out of Washington. And uh, what the Mapland Act is going to do is uh, provide uh, the BLM the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, Forest Service, National Park Service, uh, Bureau of Reclamation, and uh, the Corps of Engineers with $33.5 million to take paper map records and put them into an online database for you know, for uh, America. And uh, the number one reason uh, hunters and anglers cited as not getting out into you know, not spending as much time afield is because of access issues. And that's going to, this is going to go a long way with that. Uh, second thing is the, uh, the e-bike rule. And um, last August, uh, Secretarial Order 3376 uh, told land agencies to develop their own rules for e-bikes on non-motorized routes on public land. And as of uh, April, so last month, they uh, have officially authorized the use of e-bikes on non-motorized routes. You know, basically just changing the definition of motorized vehicles. And that's not something that's going to be great for wildlife habitat or your like your migrating species when nobody's really out there and it's just going to have an impact that is not necessary and not good for wildlife on our public lands. But those are, those are two things that, 
I picked out for the national side. Like I said, not a whole lot going on with uh, the pandemic. So hopefully in a, in a little bit, we'll get back to, uh, we'll get back to more public land uh, and wildlife conservation acts. <laughs> yeah. Rather, rather than hearing about stimulus checks and everything else every other day. You know, there's some really cool legislation that's pending <clears throat> and it, and like you said, it hasn't moved, you know, kind of the biggest one when yep. everybody's watching is the land and water conservation funds, you know, getting permanently funded. And, um, you know, that's probably going to get done. Everybody thinks it's going to get done. Trump asked for a bill and, and, uh, but we're still waiting. So that, that e-bike rule, um, I think those guys believe that's going to provide greater access for people that, you know, are out of shape. I, I see, I see people who are out of shape who don't want to hike in using an e-bike. Um, and I, I mean, it, it could be a search and rescue issue because there's going to be people that shouldn't be that deep in the wilderness right. and, and on, and on big, on big swaths of public land shouldn't be 10 miles deep. Their bike fails, yep. they get flat tire, they're not a good bike mechanic or, or they fall off. And now you got, you know, there, there's, there's other issues with that that have very little to do with providing access. Um, you know, oh, the, yeah. the next thing's going to be somebody's going to develop a hybrid ATV. And, you know, if it's not already out there, I haven't seen it, but it's next, I'm sure. Um, yeah, just uh, like like a bad boy buggy or something. But just, you know, the electric, you know, UTV. Yeah. It's there. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, the, some of them don't have the range to go out and back. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen the electric Polaris Rangers and stuff. I, I haven't, you, you know, I, I guess I have seen them. I shouldn't say I haven't seen them. Yeah, you're exactly right. They're still out there, bad boy buggies, and there is an electric version of a Polaris Ranger and all that. Mm -hmm. it, this just seems like, you know, it's creeping to the point where as long as it's not a gas-powered motor, they're thinking about letting it be. And, and I hunted yeah. Arizona with my wife two Christmases ago out on BLM and they're already, that's what people were doing. They were out there camping for Christmas and riding their, you know, souped up, you know, players, razors and all those. I'm not a big ATV guy. I know more about hiking boots than I do off all terrain vehicles, but it, it pretty well ruined our, our mule deer hunt. Some of those, you know, guys out there and, and they have their right. I mean, it's, it's multiple yeah. use, but, Man, there is there's, so much going there's, on. There's a place for those things, and you know there are. This this was just going strictly on the non-motorized routes, which are there. They're non-motorized routes for a reason, and that's just it's not necessary. There's places for them to ride it otherwise. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, and I totally agree because, you know, we can walk on those motorized routes, so I guess we can share them. But I'm telling you, when we were mule deer hunting in Arizona. Um, you know, they've, they've got an over the counter late season, uh, archery deer hunt, which we decided to give each other for a Christmas present. It was damn, it was downright dangerous to be walking along those mountain roads out there in the national forest, um, and BLM lands with those, you know, um, souped up ATVs coming. You, you'd have to hear them coming and get off the road. Cause they were not, they did not care that there were hunters walking along that road. They'd run you over. Yeah. Um, that was their fun, you know, and I get it. They're allowed to have fun. It's public lands. They own it too, but those are motorized roads. So they, you know, I have to share them with them and that's all good. But now that we're going to put basically what is an electric motorcycle on, yeah. on what was non-motorized roads, I got to cry foul. You know, those are, yeah. those are for the walkers, man. But, uh, mm -hmm. oh, man. um, all right, brother. So there is way too much going on at the state level. I'm uh, I'm probably going to get laryngitis talking about it. And the reason I'm going to get laryngitis talking about it and there's so much going on at the state level is um, our Fish and Wildlife Commission um, was not allowed to meet um, because uh, the commission itself's nine members. Uh, and then the departmental staff, they have six division chiefs plus – experts that have to brief them plus the head of the department um and the deputy so by the time they get just the minimum amount of staff in with the commission it, it far exceeds the uh 10 person rule so our uh 
kudos to you know uh, Dr. Kleinard um, and the department um, for getting a meeting together because we haven't had one since January. Um, and they had one last Friday, May 22nd. Um, it was done via Zoom. And uh, so the Fish and Wildlife Commissioners could meet via Zoom. And then departmental personnel were in their separate offices on Zoom. And the experts, including uh, the, the departmental veterinarian and biologists, all met via Zoom. And it was tough. It was tough to keep the peace. It was tough to make sure everybody was voting on the right issues. And um, I know uh, the chair of the commission, uh, Dr. Carl Kleinard, really struggled um, with that format. Um, but uh, before it got started, he was concerned and he had, um, you know, told, uh, you know, the leaders in the sportsman's community he was concerned that our voices wouldn't get heard and he was going to do his best. And I will tell you that I think he hit a home run. I, I don't think there he could have done a better job with the format he was given, with the fact that we had so much to cover because we hadn't had uh, a meeting since January. So really, I, I have to give credit where credit's due. I know department personnel helped him out, but that's their job. Uh, Dr. Kleinard is a volunteer. All of our district commissioners on the Fish and Wildlife Commissioner volunteers. And uh, that meeting was basically a full-time job for him for about 10 days uh, before the meeting. And uh, I got to give him kudos uh, for what he did. Um, so jumping right in uh, to state issues, uh, and we'll jump right into elk. Um, in the minutes from uh, previous, uh, they had to approve the minutes for December and January at the at the Zoom meeting in last week. And in those minutes, um, we got a uh, a view into one of the uh, elk tag issues that we as sportsmen have been asking to get fixed um, since last year. And um, just so everybody knows, and this is for last uh, this last fall season, out of the 175 either sex bull archery tags, only 153 were actually purchased. So 175 of the general season either sex archery tags were given away in the lottery and only 153 were purchased. So that means 22 of those tags did not get purchased. Out of the 150 bull firearm tags that were given away in the lottery, only 144 were purchased. So six did not get used. Out of the 122 cow tags in the first season, because um, there was 244 general cow tags given away, 122 each of the uh, cow seasons. In the first season, 122 were given away in the lottery, and only 100 were purchased. So out of all of those tags that were given away in the lottery, 50 were not used. Um, and we've been asking the commission to fix that, and uh, they briefed an information item later on in the commission meeting Um for a way to fix that and we've been asking for a second chance um, drawing or a lottery uh, second chance lottery or a um, over-the-counter first-come first-served purchase for just in-state residents um, almost uh, every state that I can think of out west uh, that has a significant elk season um, has a second chance drawing lottery or over-the-counter purchasing so that, yeah, yeah. That, I'm getting ready to put in for one <laughs> here, in a, here in a couple of days. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, we 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 sorely needed to do that. We had a we being the um, uh, the state of Kentucky uh, writ large, um, but the sportsmen's the leaders of sportsmen's community, um, you know, Kentucky BHA, Kentucky Safari Club, and the League of Kentucky Sportsmen and Appalachian Outdoorsmen all kind of have expressed that as an issue. And uh, Kentucky and Safari Club and BHA both ex uh, were present at uh, the last fall's Elk Guides, Kentucky Elk Guides Association meeting with the department officials. And we briefed that that was something we'd like to see happen. So that was a uh, – it's good that they're um, working on that. And that came from, uh, I think, the December, January minutes. Uh, that's why they didn't have the second um, cow elk season numbers yet. A couple of good news items. Uh, in the new commission format, they're um, not they're abolishing the committees. There were four committees previously. There was a public relations committee, the wildlife committee, the fisheries committee, and um, 
the admin and kind of law enforcement committee. And um, now they're going to have uh, working groups that are on specific issues. And uh, in this meeting, um, they designated uh, the Wildlife Management Area Working Group. Um, it's going to be chaired by uh, Commissioner Morgan out of the 8th and uh, Commissioner Swallows out of the 3rd and Commissioner, F Commissioner Fisher out of the second district are going to be on that working group they did not name um the uh, <coughs> these sportsmen or women that will be on it um they're going to work on that kind of uh, offline and make sure that those sportsmen and women are the right people and that they're willing to participate because if they're going to be on that working group then their you know their name and email is going to get published on the department website to take sportsmen's questions and bring sportsmen and women's issues to that working group um, the department, or excuse me, the commission also designated an elk management working group. Uh, the chair of that's going to be Mr. Horn, who is the seventh district commissioner. Uh, Mr. Knott from the fourth district, and Mr. Bond from the fifth district um, will be the three commissioners on that. And once again, they did not name these sportsmen and women um, uh, who will be on that. Um, there were some action items at the commission meeting. Um, the uh, first one was uh, the holding and interstate transportation of captive servants. Um, and uh, there was a proposed amendment to that uh, that would require um, wild servid transportation to be reported. Um, and uh, basically the discussion is that currently a captive servid permit holder is required to report um, the transportation of wild cervids uh, into their enclosure uh, by submitting a written report to the department and that's really slow. Um, the change they wanted to make was that the wildlife division requires that captive cervid facilities report by phone in addition to submitting the written request and that they have 48 hours. Um, so it'll be quicker, more timely reporting of movement of captive servants in the state, and that passed unanimously. Um, the next uh, couple issues were um, really about um, um, the movement and or control of uh, non-game species. Um, they wanted to amend uh, the commercial nuisance wildlife control basically uh, a discussion of the method of capture for um, bats and um, which bats should be captured and how they should be captured and why. And it, it was related to SARS-CoV-2, um, which is the causative agent of COVID-19. And um, the concern is, would it spill over into North American bats? So they um, wanted to change some of the um, nuisance wildlife control operators. These are the people you call when you got a bat in your house or a, or a raccoon in your attic uh, in regard to bats and how they do uh, trap them and or kill them. And um, that's an extensive dis uh, amount of discussion. But if anyone's interested in that, it passed. And once again, if folks want to watch the four hours worth of video the department will post that and you can watch the entire meeting i'm i'm hitting the highlights so that everybody can listen to it and then if you're seriously interested you can hit the uh the department website where they publish a uh, youtube video of the entire meeting um the department also then excuse me the commission also then um <coughs> wanted to uh, update the uh, wildlife rehabilitation permits uh and that was also uh in relation to bats um, and uh, there are some folks that hold bats for educational purposes and um, they uh, wanted to update the regulations for that and once again it was in regards to SARS-CoV-2 virus which is really the causative agent of COVID-19 um, and that passed unanimously um, and then they moved on to um, the transportation holding of live native wildlife um, and this is an amendment to prohibit the importation and transportation through Kentucky of wild rabbits, hares, and, pi and pikas or pikas. Um, and this was an, an emergency reg, um, and it was based on um, rabbit hemorrhagic disease uh, or, R or RHDV2. Um, in March and April of this year, uh, reports were that uh, rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus 2 or RHDV2 um, 
was confirmed in domestic and wild rabbits. I say again, domestic and wild rabbits in southwestern United States, uh, including Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, and Texas. And as an uh, emergency um, uh, action item, um, they wanted to uh, limit um, the transportation and or relocation of rabbits uh, into and out of the state, and that passed unanimously. Um, that's a serious, serious concern for rabbit hunters. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, then there was a second um, admin regulation that they had to change in regards to um, um, changing and limiting and or prohibiting the importation of wild hares, rabbits, and pikas or pikas. Um, and that really had to do with just to make sure that the timing of uh, that rule didn't expire or sunset it was to lengthen that then there was another um, admin rule based on the transportation of live exotic wildlife that was basically the same exact thing um, I, sh I shouldn't say wildlife but that's the the word they use really it's uh, domestic stock rabbits so they also had an emergency regulation passed uh, unanimously um, for domestic rabbits that could potentially become an in um, infected with the hemorrhagic disease um, and the same thing there so you know the the disease has been confirmed in both the agricultural side of rabbits so rabbit farms uh, and they're farmed for you know both pets and meat and and it was then it was confirmed in wild rabbits so the department is uh, and the Fish and Wildlife Commission took emergency action to limit um, the transportation of those animals. Um, the next was um, um, working on a new, the, those were all passed. So now we're talking about new business and new business can be discussed, but it, it doesn't get uh, voted on. So those were action items that were voted on. Um, the next thing the departments talked about was new business items. Um, and one of the new business items is uh, establishing a fine system for violations um, uh, using land and waters on lakes owned or controlled by the department. Um, the bottom line is that, that the buffer areas on lakes owned or controlled by the department continue to be difficult to enforce and require constant patrolling. Um, once a violation has been noted, it becomes difficult to make decisions um, on the best way to handle the violation. And in order to offset uh, the cost of the enforcement, um, the Fisheries Division wants to establish a fine system for dealing with those violations. Um, the, the background on that is um, almost all of our fines um, for and our punishments, really, because some of them include jail time, but almost, I don't want to say almost, I'm going to go off, off the deep end here and say all of our fines and punishments need to be updated. They're all old, and they're they're very um, they're very low. In fact, I think our listeners might remember the young man from Alabama that was down in a Peabody WMA last deer season that got stopped and and ticketed, um, and it, it was a story that kind of rocketed across social media. But he was deer hunting in the Peabody without a license. And uh, he killed more than his bag limit, and he got caught. And one of the things that he told the, the game warden was the reason he didn't have a license was the fine cost less than the license. So the out-of-state license was more expensive than the fine, and this knucklehead just went ahead and went hunting on the idea he wouldn't get caught. And if he did get caught, it was going to cost him less than, than buying a license. So this was an idea um, that came out of uh, a commission meeting last year that uh, our officers that patrol um, – are the boat docks on our lakes that we allow to have docks that are not Corps of Engineer lakes, they're department-owned lakes, um, that that patrolling costs us more. Uh, the fines that, that they issue should um, basically equal what it costs us to do the work to issue the fines. The department's not trying to make any money on it, but right now they're losing money. Um, the patrolling is more expensive than issuing the fines, and I think we could all agree that if we're issuing fines, it should at least the department should at least break even on it. Um, the next uh, discussion item came um, from uh, the marketing uh, division um, at the department, and um, 
they talked about the elk draw, uh, and we had more people put in for the lottery this year than we have uh, had in recent years. And um, they wanted to finally address um, the issues we've um, – we as the sportsmen have been giving them about the elk draw for years. Basically, uh, they talked about preference points. They talked about, um, you know, why we don't have the um, application period open earlier, um, as some states do. And um, they made some proposals for the 2022 season. Once again, ladies and gentlemen, these are for the 2022 season. Um, the first one was that they would open the application window earlier, um, starting potentially uh in august uh of, so it would be open in august of this year and it wouldn't close until april 30th of next year and then they have the lottery in may of next year for the fall of next year so for the 2021 elk season um using it as an example um it would open august of this year now that would not take effect until 2022 because of um, how long it takes to get things passed, and I, and I need to I need to put in a little commentary or editorial here. We as sportsmen and women asked the department, and we weren't the only constituency in Kentucky that asked for a longer timeline for public comment. And last um, legislative uh, session in the 2019 legislative session. A bill was passed in our, uh, in our legislature and signed by the governor that lengthened. Uh, actually, I think Governor Bevin vetoed it, and then the legislature overrode his veto. But either way, it was in the 2019 session, and um, it lengthened the period for public comment for all um, departments in Kentucky state government. So we, we really have this juxtaposition of – sportsmen talking out of both sides of, of our mouths where we say we want to get things done we want to make these changes but then when we don't like something we get mad that it takes you know too long to get done it, we can't have it both ways so in my opinion it's frustrating that it takes a longer time to get things done now but that's a good thing it's everyone should get involved everyone should you know um, be contacting their district commissioners if not their legislators and talking about these issues that are important to them um, but some things just take time. And so these changes to the elk program that are being briefed in spring of 2020 will not actually take effect if they go through this, this process and get approved. And th these are just discussion items, but they would not actually take effect until 2022. So anyway, one of them would be lengthening the application window. The second one speaks to those unused elk tags that I, that I briefed from the minutes of the December-January meeting. Um, and that was that people could voluntarily surrender their lottery permits. So if, if someone got, it's not a permit, you, you get the tag in the, in the lottery draw, you draw a tag, that allows you to buy an elk permit. Um, so someone could, instead of not using it, they could voluntarily surrender it. And then it would be voluntarily surrendered, or there would be a deadline where if they didn't buy their permit, so if they got the perm, if they got the, tag through the lottery in the May drawing, let's say they didn't buy the permit before July 15th, it would be surrendered. No penalty to them. The department doesn't want to penalize people for not using it. So the if they didn't use it, they could apply again next year. Um, normally when you draw um, uh, current under current regulation, when you win a tag in the lottery, you're out for three years. What they want to do is allow people to voluntarily surrender those or the department take them back from them after a deadline and reissue those tags to allow a resident sportsman to purchase them. So the department is, after a year of sportsmen and women asking, the department and the commission are getting after a solution to the unused elk tax. Um, then they talked about a loyalty program to be associated with that. And I am not sure how they're going to pull this off, but it makes good sense. And it would be that there wouldn't be preference points, but the department would somehow figure out who their most loyal applicants were uh, for the lottery and allow them to purchase the leftover 
tags first. So it would be the most loyal resident Kentucky sportsman who have been applying year after year who would have a shot at those surrendered elk tags, thus allowing them to buy the permit from the people that did not buy the permit. Um, there was a lot of discussion about that. Um, uh, a lot of the commissioners were, were excited about that, but they didn't want any cow permits reissued, generally speaking. And uh, we don't editorialize on this show, but I can also tell you that a lot of our elk guides have stopped guiding cow hunts um, because they're concerned about the population. So that was um, some very interesting discussion and updates on the elk uh, program from the marketing department. Um, what do you think about that, brother? Uh, there, yeah, there's a, quite a bit to unpack there. Uh, I know you did the... the uh the Facebook Live uh, with uh, Kentucky Outdoors uh, media. That was uh, people should go watch that. That was a pretty informative uh, interview there about the elk program here. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Oh, thanks, man. Um, you know, I didn't. Um, John Step, who is the you know the owner and the and the editor of Kentucky Outdoors media, invited me on there, and you know I don't. I don't hold a position other than, you know, volunteer elected position in, in Kentucky PHA and then a committee position in Kentucky and a safari club. And, you know, there's people that were upset about that show and, and, you know, saying certain things about, you know, well, if you're not down here all the time, you don't understand how this works. And and I get that sentiment. I do not live in, in Southeast Kentucky. My mother's family's from there. I spent a lot of time growing up there. Um, and, and I have hunted elk in Kentucky helping friends. I've never drawn a tag. So I, I kind of know that side of it. But I would I would say to those people, if you're not attending the meetings and talking to the Elk Guides Association in the meetings, the official discussion, to see what the official input is that they have with the department, and then sit in the meetings with the nine commissioners and, and, and listen to and or read the minutes from the official discussion, then you're as you're as equally uninformed because you just don't know what the official program is doing. So right. you yeah. know, try to communicate the official program ideas. But I was ed- allowed by John Step to editorialize a little bit on his show. So that was a that was a good deal because um, I don't I don't do that on our show. Um, so the next discussion item was um, to. Uh, um, Again, a discussion item. So these these things would not take you know effect for over a year because they still got to come in and, and be moved along and, and and updated and voted on. So another discussion item was to uh, standardize the agreements we have with um, private persons and corporations that own land that we call a WMA or a hunter access area. We we tend to think that every single one of our WMAs or hunter access areas are owned by the department or the Corps of Engineers. That's not true. Um, and, you know, part of the reason that we need to take care of our WMAs and hunting access areas is not just that they belong to everybody. You know, leave it better than you than you found it is always the rule. But some of those areas do not belong to the government. They belong to private individuals and privately held corporations. And over the years, those agreements with those private individuals and those private cor- privately held corporations have um, allowed a lot of hunters and fishers access to, to land they wouldn't have had. And in exchange, there's you know always been some uh, money in certain programs that the department's allowed to use, like uh, especially for dove fields and such. Um, you know, the department uh, reimburses the landowner to help put dove fields in and stuff. That's really a separate issue, but there's a little money involved in this. But there, there's also tags involved. So, if you know, if you put up a certain amount of acreage for a certain number of years, then you can get a landowner permit, and those are landowner elk permit. Those are not in the general draw. So that's something that people can buy year after year. And that's another reason some people think that the, that the lottery is fixed. It's, it's not fixed. It's never been fixed. But there are other tags the department issues in exchange for participation in biological studies to allow the department on to private land to study elk and then to allow the department on private land to capture elk and collar them to allow the department 
um, access for hunters. So you're allowing civilians, you know, who don't own that land um, on that land to hunt. And there are additional elk tags given there. And those can be the same people year after year. So that's kind of the perception in addition to the commissioner's tags where you can get an elk tag year after year. Um, this particular discussion item was not about tags. It was about those agreements that the department has with private individuals and private corporations who allow us, the public, onto their land. And it was to standardize those agreements. Over the years, those agreements have been made individually. You know, they cut a deal with you, Ben, because you own 5,000 acres and you call it the Ben Bishop WMA, which you don't, but that's my example. And then two years later, they cut a deal with me for my 700 acres uh, that we call the Able WMA, which I don't, but those are the examples. So two years later, two massively different. You had 5,000 acres. I had 700. We each want to allow, um, we basically want to allow trespassing. We want to allow anybody who wants to, to use our land. Um, but the deals are significantly different. And over the years, that become very hard for the department to manage. The, the, and um, what they're going to do with this discussion item is they're going to standardize um, each of those agreements. Uh, it makes perfect sense. And the reason they gave to standardize those agreements um, is to ensure that sportsmen and women are getting the access as intended by the program and to ensure that um, the public access is given prior to any compensation or permits being issued. So um, standardizing the, uh, the WMA and HAA agreements to ensure that we get access and that access is guaranteed by the landowner prior to the landowner getting compensation makes perfect sense to me. Um, uh, the next few discussion items were on migratory birds. Um, and uh, there was a discussion item about allowing crossbow hunting um, for uh, migratory birds. And it was really an interesting discussion because um, it's, it's an obscure way to hunt migratory birds to use archery equipment. It's already legal and some people do it. Um, in fact, in the past, I, I know people that have done it. Um, they wanted to add crossbows. It's just a discussion um, and uh, we'll see how that works. Um, it is actually allowed by uh, federal law um, and the way federal law works on migratory birds just in case our listeners don't understand is we must comply uh, every state in the union uh, must comply with federal law on migratory birds we can make those rules in the state more restrictive you know so say the bag limits four of any duck species we in kentucky at the federal level if the bag limits four of any duck species, we in Kentucky can say it's two. What we can't do is say it's more. And so since the federal law allows crossbows, this discussion item was whether or not we would. Right now we don't, and that's completely fine because we can make uh, our rules more restrictive. We cannot make them more liberal. Um, then there was a discussion about uh, creating a hybrid scalp season with a daily bag limit of one for the first 15 days of the regular duck season and a daily bag limit of two for the remaining 45 days. Um, and that's also coming from U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, they dictate the bag limits, and uh, so we're probably going to see a change there. Um, then there was a discussion about changing the waterfowl hunting zones, and uh, it was to repeal one of our admin regs and move the description of the eastern and western uh, zones into uh, basically one zone um and it speaks to that uh an, an old rule there was an old rule um that was created uh when the harvest of canada geese was being very strictly regulated by the u.s fish and wildlife service um canada geese as as most of us understand now are, are not in any way shape or form um uh <laughs> threatened or endangered they're everywhere uh, right, yeah. So they wanted to repeal that rule, that restrictive rule. And um, so, you know, in, in the department's language, it's, you know, today populations of Canada geese are doing well and the need for goose zones is gone. And the commission ha has removed the special regulation from all goose zones and now geese are being managed under statewide regulations. So um, they really want to just 
update things based on the population there. Um, another discussion item was Sandhill Crane hunting season. And uh, this discussion item was to change Sandhill Crane hunting season to match the second segment of regular duck season. So Sandhill season um, would move uh, to December 7th through January 31st if that gets moved uh, and voted on. And then there was a discussion of implementing a veterans hunt, a veterans waterfowl hunt. It'd be just two extra days of waterfowl hunting uh, for veterans. And uh, this actually comes out of a federal uh, law that got passed. Um, in March of last year, President Trump signed the John D. Dingle Jr. Conservation Management and Recreation Act. And you and I actually talked about that on this show. And um, mm-hmm. For anybody that has the time to read uh, laws as they pass, like I do, um, you're you're you know a glutton for punishment like me, and <laughs> you can as you read through these laws, you find things, and that that law um, did many things, but it uh, actually modified the Migratory Bird Treaty Act uh, to allow for two days of veteran hunts, and states are now allowed to have two days per duck hunting zone. Um, designated as a veteran hunt and as a youth waterfowl hunting uh, time. So um, a lot of discussion on that. Not sure it'll pass. Not sure it won't. Um, There's a lot of states that are concerned about that because if you're going to do it for veterans, why not do it for first responders? And and I tend to agree with that, but we don't editorialize. So um, that's why that didn't uh, get moved. And then the last new business um, item, was um, trying to create more and better dove fields. In fact, uh, they wanted to work on uh, what they call experimental dove fields. Um, uh, It's hard to explain in a few words what they mean by experimental dove field. Um, But uh, these fields would uh, have different uh, rules applied to them. And different quotas and number of hunters and number of days uh, it would basically limit access to the to the dove field so that it wasn't uh, how do I put this so the field wasn't shot out so early in the dove season it would basically limit hunt, hunting pressure and they're calling it experimental dove fields um, and uh, it would also require at this point it's just a discussion item new business item but it would also require you know um, kind of a telecheck, kind of a, a hunter, um, the, the quota hunters or the, or the limited hunters on these experimental fields would be required to keep track of the birds they killed and report them and uh, such like that. And then they also wanted to um, update uh, for dove hunting season um, that new hunters, 16 and over, um, could be part of the uh, mentored um, dove hunts that the department puts on. Again, just another discussion item. So um, that basically uh, covers the commission meeting. I know we, I know I unpacked a whole lot really quick there. And if folks want to investigate more deeply any of those um, issues, you're free to uh, email me and at uh, um, ranger r a n g e r at theslowhunt.com. All one word: the slow hunt ranger at theslowhunt.com. And, and I'll point you in the right direction. Um, and where, I'll, where I will point you, if you don't know how to get to it already, is the department archives a video of the entire meeting as part of, the, of part of their minutes and as part of their record keeping. And anybody can watch that. It's, it's public. Um, you don't um, have to ask. It's right there on the website, but it can be hard to find. Um, really quick, since we... Haven't had one of these since January. I'm going to go over um, uh, the laws that... So we have a legislative session that starts every year in January. Or actually, really, it starts in December with our legislators doing what are called bill requests. And they turn a bill request into um, the leadership in either chamber. And they turn that into a bill through just you know their bureaucratic process in our legislature here in Kentucky. And those bill requests in December become bills in January, and they are then sent into committee and worked on in committee. And if they come out of committee and go to the floor, they get a, a number of readings, uh, and they're posted, um, and then they're voted on. And so a lot of the bills get people fired up, 
but a lot of the bills don't actually get a vote, and if they get a vote in one house, they have to go to the other house. doesn't matter which house they originated in. They have to go to the other house for a vote before it goes to the governor, and it has to pass, of course, before it goes to the governor's desk um, um, to be signed into law. So um, some of our listeners might be wondering about the laws that were uh, important to sportsmen and women, and um, since they all went final, um, in the interim when we haven't had one of these shows, uh, I'm going to go over those real quick. So we had a number of gun control bills. Uh, House Bill 45 was one of those gun control bills, and that never made it out of committee. Um, House Bill 334 would have put um, a constitutional amendment on the ballot this fall, basically that the people have a right to clean air, pure water, and the preservation of natural, scenic, historic, and aesthetic values of the environment in the Commonwealth. That would have been a um, amendment to our Constitution, which requires it goes on the ballot for the general election in the fall so that the Kentuckians can vote on it prior to it being added to our con state Constitution. That also never made it out of committee. House Bill 31 um, would have repealed um, the very popular and successful concealed carry um, update that was done in 2019. It would have made it more restrictive uh, in 2020, and that never made it out of committee. Uh, House Bill 52 would have required the Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Fish and Wildlife Commission to promulgate or make rules to expand coyote hunting, and unfortunately that never made it out of committee. House Bill 76 was another gun control bill. It did not make it out of committee. House Bill 192 was an expansive uh, very far-reaching gun control bill, and it never made out of committee. Uh, Senate Bill 32 um, was a gun control bill that would have made um, people who don't have a gun safe um, basically outlaws. Um, it would require uh, folks to store their firearm legally and defined what legal firearm storage was. That never made out of committee. Um, House Bill 259 was a companion bill to Senate Bill 32 that was about um, gun storage. That never made it out of committee. Um, House Bill 352 was the governor's budget. So this was a big one. Um, I think if our listeners remember that governor's original budget um, was going to take $5.5 million uh, out of the Department of Fish and Wildlife each year for two years because we pass our budget on a biennium so it's every every other year we have a budget session and the odd year we have a non-budget session so when our legislature meets in odd years they can only consider bills that don't require um, any funding um, so this being an even year uh, the governor's budget uh, goes in there and it would have required uh, the department to give to the general fund 5.5 million of their own money so for our listeners that don't know the department of fish and wildlife gets no money from your taxes it gets no money from the general fund from your income tax um, the way the department of fish and wildlife is funded is by hunting fishing licensing hunting fishing boating and trapping license sales that's about 50 percent of the department's budget uh, 30 to 40 percent of the department's budget comes from excise taxes on hunting, shooting, and fishing equipment, meaning anytime you purchase a piece of hunting, uh, fishing, or shooting equipment, and that shooting can be archery or firearms, there is a tax on that purchase that goes to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service where they hold it and they give it back to the states. Um, actually, the Department of Interior holds it. And then they transfer it to their to a subordinate in the Department of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is part of Department of the Interior. Department of Interior is their boss. Um, anyway, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service gives that back to the states in the form of grants. Um, and our listeners might understand what Pittman Robertson and Dingle Johnson are. Those are two laws, and that's how we get the money back. So the department gets half of their budget every year from license sales, they get 30 to 40 percent from grants, then the balance um, is boating registration and some other grants that the department gets or monies that they make with timber harvest on WMA, etc. So 
Um, the governor's budget proposed to remove $5.5 million each year for two years for $11 million total, which the department only makes about $68 million a year. Um, so removing $11 million was a huge hit. Um, the sportsmen and women got pretty upset and uh, got involved, and um, that $11 million um, was put back into uh, Fish and Wildlife. It did not come out of Fish and Wildlife. And the way that worked was – or the way it always works is the governor's budget goes from his desk to um, the budget committee chairman in the House of Representatives in Kentucky. That committee chairman turns the governor's budget into a bill. That bill this year was House Bill 352. In that discussion, it got out when it came out of the House after it was amended in the House and sent over to the Senate, that $11 million was put back in Fish and Wildlife. The Senate bill also put it back into Fish and Wildlife, and the department got its full funding for the year, which in the final version was $68,521,300. It passed with 80 yeas, uh, 10 nays, and um, zero abstained, but 10 did not vote. Now, what everybody needs to know is the governor then vetoed it. So he wanted that $11 million. Now, in his veto, he didn't talk about the Fish and Wildlife money because he knew it was very unpopular. You can actually read his veto, and I and uh, we'll talk to you about how you, where you can find that later. Um, but then his veto was overridden uh, by a vast majority. So the good news on House Bill 352 is that $11 million did not come out of Fish and Wildlife. Um, House Bill 369, um, which defined... Um, um, the legal disposal of uh, cervids, um, so, you know, deer, elk, caribou, moose, um, was going to require that people who um, process them, whether it's a taxidermist or a meat processor or a butcher shop, have to um, dispose of them only in two ways. One, uh, send them to a landfill, or two, bury them a certain depth and cover them in lime. Uh, the Senate amended that uh, to put um, rendering in as a third way, and a lot of our big processors use rendering right now. Um, that got passed out of the House, but it did not pass. Um, so that did not make it actually. The House voted yes, but it did make it out of the Senate and become law. Um, House Bill 485 was something we sorely needed. We sorely, sorely needed... Um, an update to uh, all of our poaching fines. And um, that bill also was going to recognize uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service game wardens as law enforcement officers in the state of Kentucky and um, giving them legal, what we call LEO authorities. Um, that made it out of the House, but did not, unfortunately, did not make it out of the Senate. Um, House Bill 511. Um, was a bill to improve who could donate game meat to Hunters for the Hungry. Uh, that made it out of the House, but once again, unfortunately, did not make it out of the Senate. And then um, uh, House Bill 529 was a interesting gun control bill. It was trying to modify the rules around uh, colleges and secondary education facilities and how they could or could not regulate um, weapons on campus um, that never made it out of committee so that is a very fast rundown <laughs> of the legislation as well um, and uh, Ben you want to tell them where they can um, find more information and get involved about national issues uh, yeah go to backcountryhunters.org uh, and hit the take action tab and uh, scroll down through there and see all the all the issues we're facing as hunters and anglers and uh, click a button, put in your name, email and all that good stuff. And it's that simple. Yeah. That, yeah. That take action tab at backcountryhunters.org is super easy. You know, and you can read up on all the issues of the day at the national level and, and take action at the state. It's uh, the Kentucky and the Safari clubs, legislative affairs website. Um, www.kysci-lac.com kysci-lac.com and um, uh, 
full disclosure, that's the committee I'm on with the uh, Kentucky and Safari Club, and um, uh, they have asked me to be part of that since I spend so much time on on uh, state law and, and admin regulations of the department. So um, those are two places you can take action and learn more. Um, you got any final thoughts, buddy? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, well, going back to the RHD thing you talked about earlier, I mean, I'm not – I'm not a biologist or anything by any means, but I do think this could be if, you know, if that, there's going to be a disease within rabbits, I think now would be the most beneficial time for it where, where their population is cyclical. I think it's nowhere near at its peak. So while it's in this lull, I think hopefully this disease will run its course and not be too, not be too detrimental as what it could be if, you know, rabbits were in their highest numbers. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, a lot of people are aware that snowshoe hares have a pretty regular seven-year cycle of, of peaks and valleys in their population, but cottontails and our and our big swamp cottontail are, you know, are, are, we have a couple versions of, of, of rabbits in, in, in uh, North America here and in the United States and of wild hares and rabbits. And uh, you're exactly right. Their populations are cyclical, and your point's well taken. Um, if we were in a a very up uh, time in populations, meaning if populations were, you know, very high right now in our wild rabbit uh, species across North America, they would more easily pass that hemorrhagic disease from rabbit to rabbit. Um, you know, right now the populations are down, so... If we had to get hit with it, nobody's happy about it. This was a good time. I think the department did a really good job of listening to AFWA. And if many of our listeners aren't going to know what AFWA is, AFWA is the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. It's um, basically the 50 states and I think the four four U.S. territories, you know, Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands, and all those people also participate somehow. But AFWA um, put out those recommendations on um, – uh, disease, basically, can COVID-19, you know, jump to our um, bats? And the department took, you know, fast action on that uh, during this meeting. And then they also took action on the hemorrhagic disease and, and limiting or eliminating transportation of any kind of rabbits, wild hares, or picas or pikas um, across state lines. That was that was a pretty good deal. Um, the yeah. other thing, if, if people are really interested in that, if you are a person that's really, really interested in that, um, you you need to go to the department's website. And once again, just email me, ranger at theslowhunt.com. Um, and, uh, or you can email Ben. Ben, what's your email for the show? Uh, bi- bishop at theslowhunt.com. Yeah, e- email either one of us, and we'll help you get to the department's uh, YouTube channel where you can watch this. And, and it based on, you know these animal diseases, the department veterinarian who is very easy to listen to, she's very smart lady. Um, she gave a really good briefing as good as briefings could be, um, on zoom. And if you're really interested in those animal diseases, uh, the department veterinarian gave a great, great briefing on that. Um, yeah, I don't have any final thoughts. I talked enough, man. This, because we haven't had a meeting since January, so much has gone on with legislation and, and, uh, you know, in the department, it's been it's been a lot to talk about today. Um, yeah. Uh, if you're good, buddy, I'll wrap it up. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't think I got anything else. Okay. Um, one of the things I would tell everybody to look for is if, if you're um, uh, the kind of person that wants to participate in a public lands work day, um, whether it be public lands or public waters, your Kentucky chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is going to start back, um, we were, we were working on at least a public lands, public waters work day every month uh, last year. Um, we just had our birthday as um, uh, being a year old. Our chapter was made an official chapter in May of 2019, so we're a year old. And uh, we did eight public lands work days, and I think we did three mentoring events. So we did really 11 public service days last year. But we, we had two or three we couldn't do because of covid after June 15th, we can start again, but state regulation will uh, only allow us to um, 
and after June 15th, we can only gather in numbers of 10. But starting in July, we can gather in numbers of 50. So if you're the kind of person that wants to participate and put some sweat equity back into your public lands and public waters in the state of Kentucky and really help out the Department of Fish and Wildlife with some, you know, manpower, woman power, uh, be looking for those events. And, uh, you know, all you got to do is Google, you know, Kentucky Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Instagram or Kentucky Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Facebook, it'll it'll find a, the chapter and you can see what we're up to. Um, I'd like to thank uh, a young, talented young man named Grayson Jenkins for his music. Uh, he is a, a longtime friend of, of my partner on the podcast, Ben Bishop. He's a super talented musical artist, and he uh, allows us to use his music for the intro and uh, for the closing of the show. Thanks, Grayson Jenkins. And if anybody wants to look him up on YouTube, Please do. It's Grayson, like Grayson County, Kentucky, and then Jenkins, like Jenkins. And I uh, look him up on YouTube or Google him, and you'll you'll find his music and enjoy his music pretty quick. Um, we'd also like to thank Walter at Louisville Toppers. Um, if you uh, go into Louisville Toppers and you talk about uh, this podcast, uh, Walter will give you a discount on uh, uh, things that you buy at Louisville Toppers. They are located at 4040-4040 Preston Highway in Louisville. And you can check them out at uh, louisvilletoppers.com. It's all one word, the city of Louisville, and then toppers, T-O-P-P-E-R-S.com. So thanks, Walter, for being uh, a good friend of the show. And um, I'd just like to remind everybody that this podcast is part of the Slow Hunt LLC network. And remember, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Until next time, thanks for listening. One, two, three.